Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're in season 11 now, would you believe? But for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, architect, or in this case, manufacturer, about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today we're back on Zoom to meet Mark Cropper, chairman of specialty papermaker James Cropper. Now it's fair to say that paper has dominated the life of Mark's family for over 175 years. The company has been based in the picturesque village of Burnside near Kendall in the Lake District since 1845 and Mark is, rather remarkably, the sixth generation of family to run the firm that currently employs around 600 people. He also has a unique insight into the company, having written its official history entitled The Leaves We Write On in 2004. Croppers has long specialised in making coloured paper, but in more recent years has also branched out with a division devoted to technical fibres, think carbon fibre paper and other non-woven materials, as well as colour form, a new packaging solution, I hate to use that word, but I've used it anyway, which aims to replace single-use plastics. The company's clients include Selfridges, Lush, Burberry and champagne company Ruinard to name just a handful. Not only that, but Mark has also launched the Paper Foundation on a site a stone's throw away from the main factory where he's creating paper the traditional way, by hand, using over 700 moulds that he's tirelessly collected. Mark, are you there? I'm here, yeah. Hi. (laughs) Very nice to see you uh, on Zoom, admittedly. How are you? I am fine, yeah. Just got released by Test and Trace two days ago from 10 days in COVID self-isolation. So it's like being let out of jail. How was COVID, well, how was your COVID experience, I guess, is the question. It wasn't too bad, to be honest. The nicest thing was to be told by someone that actually you're fine. You know, so this nice lady (laughs) rang me up on Sunday afternoon and said, you're good to go. How could she tell? Just time. Yeah, well, there was time and actually I felt fine. There's particular symptoms that you have to keep on um, staying at home. Fortunately, I didn't have any of those. Good. Well, I'm glad you're back in the um, the outside world now. <laughs> Shall we start by talking a little bit about the site that you have in Burnside? For listeners who maybe haven't seen it, could you describe what's there? Yeah, so it's a really historic mill site. There's been industry or, you know, making of one form or another here for about 800 years. And the history of paper goes back to, in fact, the 1740s and then evolved from there, really. But also, for the sort of the 100 years until we took over as a, as a family, there was also, in fact, one of the world's first mechanised cotton mills and woollen mills was there as well. They were actually directly managed by the family, the Quaker family that we married into. So, in fact, I've got 10 generations of milling history <laughs> at Burnside. It's a really old site, but, you know, the outward appearances, it looks very traditional. We've got a 19th century clock tower still there on the front, but behind that, we've got 24 acres of really the world's most technically advanced and diverse paper making operations you know that's around yeah interesting just going back to the history of the site a little bit i'm intrigued to know why the textile mill failed whereas the paper thrived to cut a long story short the very first mechanized mills were still an era where steam power didn't really exist so they had to be close to a source of water power and that tended to be closer to, you know, closer to the mountains, effectively. Mm. So, you know, whether, frankly, it was the foothills of the Peak District or the Lake District, that's where mills were back in the 18th century. And it was only with steam power that industry migrated into the towns. And 
to be fair, by the 1820s, actually, the cotton and the, the wool had gone right. from here. And right. I'm probably a victim of that. There was still a paper mill here serving a local market. But what made a massive difference was in the 1840s, in fact, almost the week before James Cropper, my ancestor, bought the business, they announced they were going to build a railway. And they were just building it was the great period of railway expansion. And in fact, one of the very first branch lines in the whole country was built from Oxenholme on the main line here, which is really the Kendall station, through to Windermere. That opened in 1847. And what it did, it basically connected our rural mill with a national market. It also meant, obviously, we could bring in raw materials from a long way away. So it gave us that lifeline. And in fact, that was the lifeline for the mill in this place until really motorways were built in the 1970s. And it was only actually 1972 that we had actually had a, we had our own branch line out of this branch line. We had our own railway that was two miles long connecting. So you had a branch line of a branch line. We had a branch line of a branch line (laughs) and that was bringing coal into our factory directly. You know, the, the trains would go through the middle of the village. We only got rid of that two years before I was born. I'm really interested because your ancestor, who you just mentioned, who founded the company, James Cropper, he did it initially for love. This is why the whole company started. It wasn't a love of paper. It was a love of a person, right? It's a remarkable story, really. And, and I think, you know, love and God, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what a combination. Because, you know, what happened was that the family were Quaker farmers in Lancashire. Mm. His grandfather, who was also called James. There are a lot of Jameses in your Yeah, there's uh, a James. I'm not a history. James, but there's, there's a James every second generation. Yeah. <laughs> but this very first James, he decided he didn't want to be a farmer. And he, he went off and became an apprentice in a merchant house in Liverpool, you know, through the Quaker network, mm. it was a Quaker merchant house, was very successful, became a partner within, I think, five years. And the family made a fortune, first as Liverpool merchants, but then as actually railway financiers. So they put up, I think it was 5% of the cost of the Liverpool-Manchester railway. And in fact, the grandson, James, he inherited shares in that railway. It was the world's first passenger railway. And he sold them to buy the paper mill. And the reason he bought the paper mill was that the family, actually, in the 1830s, had made so much money that they actually gave up commerce and devote their lives to philanthropy and in fact we've got we've got this amazing letter that james the first james cropper wrote to his son saying you know for a rich man to get into heaven is going to be you know really very difficult we need to we need to give up work and do good deeds but what it meant was that the grandson had no career he had nothing no prospects there was there was nothing laid out for him in fact what the family did is they prayed and we've got endless letters. You know, we, you know, I, I'm, I'm still praying for direction for our dear James. <laughs> what happened in the end was he fell in love with his first cousin who was from Kendall. And obviously he, he, you know, through her heard that these, these paper mills were, in fact, his cousin's family. It's a little bit complicated, but they owned the site, but not the business, which was papermaking by then. But obviously the business came out for sale and he bought it, moved up here and married her a few months later. Yeah. And the family's been there ever since. I mean, you point out in your book, that he didn't get off to the best start. He overpaid for the business in the first place. I think it cost him £13,000, which sounds like a a lot of money. And he wrote to his son, Charles, how did I hate the whole thing and find myself blundering into it? So, So was there a moment I'm interested when the family did love paper, is the material important? Was it the business or, or being part of the community that, that really matters? When did the family start to love paper? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> I don't think they bought the business for the love of paper. You know, they'd made money. And obviously, he was seeking purpose and direction. And he, you know, his motivation was to have some purpose and meaning and responsibility in his life. And in a way, I don't think the business 
I don't think the family's ever viewed the business as just a, a means to make a living. It's been more than that. So in many ways, I think probably the primary motivation for the family perhaps has been more about looking after something that is at the heart of a community and employs people and keeps a place going. Well, there is a, a seam in the book that you wrote, a seam of kind of civic duty and philanthropy, as you put it, running through the family. John Cropper, who was the original James's son, founded an orphan school in 1830, campaigned against drinking and prostitution, and entertained chimney sweeps and juvenile delinquents at Dingle Bank, for instance. Edward Lear wrote a limerick about him, or oh, really? a poem about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite, um, I think he throws the boys into the ocean blue. <laughs> <laughs> Staying on that theme, though, James, who set up the company and his wife, entertained the workhouse children every Saturday at their home, Ella Green. James went on to become a Liberal MP for Kendall. The, the original James was um, a leading abolitionist of slavery. And his grandson, James, ended up, I love this story, ended up eating his meals off anti-slavery crockery. Yeah, their household dinner service when they were brought up, every single piece had that famous Wedgwood cameo on it, you know, with a slave in chains saying, am I not a man and brother? Mm. Can you imagine? You know, so <laughs> that was a serious, that was a really clear message. They were very unworldly. I mean, they were incredibly well off, but actually they were extremely unworldly and they were interested in, you know, what they could do yeah. with this wealth that had been bestowed on them. I think it was probably like a lot of Quakers of their day. You're very even-handed about your family in the book, I think, Mark. I mean, because you point out that the original James had this anti-slavery philosophy Yet you also point out that despite his convictions, James continued to profit from slave-grown produce. He was a leading importer of American cotton. I mean, it was important for you to be balanced, I guess. Well, it wasn't me writing that. He wrote that. He admitted that he was conflicted. And I think the the media and such, everyone wants to point out a hypocrite, but, you know, we're all hypocrites. You know, I think the modern-day equivalent of that is talking about the need to reduce your carbon footprint. You know, the media loves to kind of lay into someone who's saying we should do that and say, look at that. Well, yeah, we're all implicit in this, but it doesn't mean, and, and this is what he said about the whole slavery debate. Yes, he was benefiting from the produce of slaves, but that didn't mean that he shouldn't do something to actually try and stop it. Mm. And James Cropper built houses for its workers. I mean, it wasn't quite Bourneville, I guess, but it was it was close, right? I mean, the, the village was dominated by the company and, and the houses that it's owned. Yeah, I mean, the village was a very small place when we came here. I mean, it was a scattering of houses. It hardly existed. There'd been a mill here, but it, it was more of a manorial type mill going back in, you know, before the 18th century. Yeah, we ended up building most of the village, almost every new house until, you know, council start building houses, which was really post-war. Yeah. And by the same token, you do point out that the working conditions were tough. You don't shy away from describing industrial injuries that occurred, some of them pretty horrific, and there were deaths as well. I do think, you know, there was a strong sense of responsibility in the family, but the kind of attitude and approach to safety going back into Victorian times was something else. And there were some horrendous stories. In fact, I only found them out because I spent, when I was, this is ages ago now when I was researching this, I was really young, but I spent three weeks in the National Newspaper Library in Collington and I read every single edition of the local newspapers for about a hundred years. I gave up when I got to 1900, but it was an unbelievably rich source of information about, you know, actually what truly went on, you know, and actually it was, you know, the, the highs, all, all the kind of parties and celebrations and things that, you know, the community coming up to the family house and all the things they did, also all the awful things that happened as well. Mm. 
Throughout the books, there are periods when the company, but also the British paper industry in general, went through a, a tough time. Joining the European Economic Community in the 70s opened the country up to competition and led to many closures throughout the industry. So why do you think croppers survived while others failed? Um, if I go back to kind of like what happened in the 70s and the 80s, I think a lot of people alive today won't actually have any idea of how terrible it was for British industry and British manufacturers. And what had actually happened was that before the First World War, we had free trade and we were competing with the rest of the world. And because actually we had some of the most modern industry in the world, we were kind of on top of the world. So we were in a very strong financial position. Then what happened is after the First World War, there was a lot of protectionism. And a lot of our markets were protected by, you know, trade tariffs and things like that. But also our, our markets really were the empire and later the Commonwealth. And you had this kind of double whammy of the 1960s, where we, we started going back into free trade agreements. So suddenly we were exposed to competition. But also what had happened is because we'd had this market of empire, which was also beginning to kind of disappear, we'd never modernized as an industry. And to make it even worse, our industry had not been destroyed in anything like the extent of which, say, France and Germany had been destroyed. So their industry was a lot newer. It was a disaster. But what we did that was different here we actually as a business and a family never stopped spending money. So we always kept modernizing. It was a very profitable time in the early 1950s. For, for some reason, I think there was some massive boom around the time of the Korean War. And we made a fortune. We reinvested it all. So when we got to the 1960s and 70s, we were in a better place. But the truth is, the reason this business survived the 80s is that my dad and his generation of directors, they rebuilt it again. They spent something like £50 million in the 1980s. I can tell you the company was been listed since the 1950s. It was worth, I think, about £8 million on the stock market, if that. They spent like, you know, five, six times the value of the company. It was all borrowed at a time of really high interest rates. Everyone thought they were completely mad, but somehow they made it work. It was completely counter the kind of prevailing wind. While everything else was closing, they were somehow finding money and not stopping and never giving up. How important are those Quaker roots to the success of the company? I can't speak for every generation that's kind of proceeded for me, but for me, the Quaker values of the business are, well, the way that Quakers approach the world really resonates to me. And I think we have so much to gain and learn from how they viewed things. Two of the most important aspects of, I think, their approach to the world. One was they're incredibly honest. They're very, very straight. And if you really, really want to be long-term sustainable in business, you know, the straighter you are, you're going you're to be trusted, you're going to be supported, whether, you know, frankly, whether it's by people you work with or your customers or suppliers, you stand a better chance of surviving. So I think that's, it's, it's just a really good business principle. I think it's a good life principle. The second thing that I think that kind of attitude or belief that they really, you know, was central to the Quakers was this idea of stewardship. So this idea that actually you never really own something, you're just merely looking after it for the next generation. And that, as a principle, you know, if we could all think like that, we'd all look after the world and each other in well, the way we need to, frankly. So, you know, in the midst of COVID last year, there was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, how we were going to come out of this. We decided to rethink our values of a company or, you know, look at them again. And 
we didn't do this as a board of the company. We did this with 60 people and we actually did it as Zoom workshops. And I think I really believe in people meeting face-to-face and interacting in informal ways. So I'm, I'm not somebody who advocates Zoom for everything, but I think for big groups, it was an amazing tool because what it does is it gives every single person an equal voice. And we really looked at this and what we stood for. And we had some great facilitation from, you know, people who are good at that kind of stuff. But, you know, what came out from this group of people that was, you know, 10% of all of us was the belief that we need to be forward thinking, caring, and responsible. We've, you know, explained a little bit more what we mean by each one of those. And I just think that that is everything that I think my ancestors and all their Quaker colleagues would believe in and sign up to as well. So I think there's such a strong fit between what they did and believed a long time ago and the way that I think we're approaching how we're doing things now. I was going to ask later in the interview, but I'll ask it now. How you coped with COVID? There were pieces in the local paper about restructuring the paper side of the business, but how did you deal with it? Or how are you dealing with it even? We're not still dealing with it. We haven't had anybody furloughed for months. Mm. You know, the furlough scheme really did help. Honestly, at the beginning, I went to my dad and said, I just don't know whether we're going to get through this. And my main reason for that was that actually we were in the, you know, in the midst of our biggest expansion program in 30 years. You know, we're spending tens of millions. And again, it's, it's all borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> if a bank asks for its money back and you can't give it back, you can be very quickly in serious trouble. And that was really my worry. There was nothing at the beginning of COVID in, in sort of March, April last year. There wasn't a furlough scheme. There was none of this support. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And obviously that all evolved and it was incredibly important to us. You know, we had three million pounds of government support last year. It's kept the show on the road. We had to stop everything. We had to stop what we literally, you know, we were doubling the size of one of our businesses and we, you know, everything stopped absolutely dead in its track from almost one day to the next. So, you know, it was a real worry, but I think you know, we, we have an annual report every year and there's a chairman's letter in the front of it. And it's always something I write myself. And honestly, when I wrote it last year, it was eye-watering because I just thought about all the different things that had been done to keep us going. And it was everyone and everything. It was, it was an extraordinary effort. You know, frankly, whether it was, you know, cleaning the light switches twice a day or all the IT things that had to go on, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary what kind of went in and you know yes coming come to what you you know you were referenced restructuring which i don't like euphemisms (laughs) (laughs) talk about the importance of straight talking yes yeah i mean we quaker about it no honestly you know we knew before covid and regardless of covid that the profitability of our biggest business which makes paper um it's been on a knife edge for a long time and we knew that we had to do something to reduce the costs Effectively, we couldn't afford to employ as many people as we, we knew we had to do that. So, you know, we brought forward what it was about 60 people. 90% of it came from voluntary redundancies. So people who chose to leave the organization, which I think is much the best way to do things. So you know, that's, I hope, sort of meant the pill was a little bit less bitter to swallow for the organization as a whole. But yeah, listen, you, you don't do these things lightly. We've always had this mantra since the beginning of the pandemic that we will emerge stronger from it. And definitely that's helped us and it's going to help us. 
you live right by the business. Do you find it easy to compartmentalize your life, Mark, or is it work the whole time? Um, <laughs> I am surrounded by my work. Mm. Not just my work in the business, you know, everything I do is around me. So if I really want to have a good holiday, I do need to get out of here. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm the chair of the, of the business. I'm not an executive, so I'm not responsible for it day to day. I'm very close to it. I'm in there all the time, but I'm not in and around it all the time. So a lot of people don't see me very much. You know, 600 people, you've got to let them get on with it. But when the pandemic strikes, are there sleepless nights? How do you personally cope, I wonder? I think I slept fine. And it was, you know, actually the pandemic was this extraordinary. I sort of sat at my desk here in a daze thinking, oh my God, what the hell's happening? But yet, because, you know, meetings all sort of your whole calendar just was disintegrated or went, I also spent more time at home with my family than I ever had. So I was going home at four o'clock and going for a walk. I think this is an extraordinary moment for lots of us where the kind of government approved hour of exercise per day. Actually, you know, we went and did it in a way that actually, you know, never did before and haven't since in a way. It was an amazing moment. So, and we had the most extraordinary spring up here. It was incredibly beautiful. And, you know, we live right next to the main road into the Lake District. And there was more sort of sheep grazing on the road than cars. Yeah. It was this magic moment, like, you know, in the midst of all this meltdown and uncertainty. It was actually a magic moment as well. Well, it's definitely another chapter for the book when you come to update it. <laughs> Just going back to your family history for a moment. One of the things I was fascinated by was there don't seem to have been any black sheeps. There are different types of personalities. I mean, some who, who appear to work harder than others. I think it was Charles who spent a lot of time hunting, but they all seem to have got on. There are no stories of family bust-ups. What do you put that down to? Um, you wouldn't say this now, okay? But obviously, until recent times, you know, the world we've lived in has been quite patriarchal, and certainly for four generations. Um, there was only one son, always lots of daughters. So I think that helped because, you know, it's the men that cause the problems often. <laughs> and when you get, you know, in family situations where you get kind of sons trying to compete with each other, that often creates conflict. And I'm very fortunate in our family, we have sort of love and trust, which is not always the case. And my father made it incredibly easy for me. Right. I mean, firstly, he never asked me to join the business. I don't think he was trying to be clever. You know, he's quite laid back, my dad. So in fact, I asked. I asked because I, you know, eventually when I sort of sorted my life out, I had some something under my belt that I thought qualified me to join the board. So it came from me and then... So it wasn't an expectation in that case? Well, if it was an expectation, it was never really communicated. I knew it was there as an inheritance and... I chose my university degree quite carefully. I sort of steered away from, say, a vocational side of things. I think... English. Exactly. You know, it doesn't lead you to necessarily... To... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know why I studied English. I think I'm probably actually more naturally an engineer. And I, I would have been an architect, I think, if I hadn't right. had... He says, would have been an architect. Who knows? I mean, whether I would have been good enough, but probably I would have gone more than that direction without this inheritance but it was an inheritance that i very much requested mm. Mm. um and in fact when i did join i found there was lots of input needed i mean i asked just loads of questions and they weren't necessarily all answered and then i said to my dad look can i can i take over and he very much just said yeah fine get on with it did you have a vision 
when you took over, when your father said, yeah, all right then? You seem to have brought progressive, sustainable thinking to the company, or was that already existing before you arrived, Mark? I think when I joined the board, actually, the company was having a really difficult time financially. You know, the early 2000s were a tough time, actually, in the paper industry. You know, not just for us, for lots of people, there were loads of failures. And really, my predominant concern when I came was that we had world-class product and world-class customers. But in fact, we weren't really making any money. And we sort of bumped along. We just kept our head above water. I think probably because I, you know, I'd written our history before this. And when I wrote the history, I didn't actually see a way onto the board of the company at all. I, I did it because I, I was a bit of a loose end and ended up volunteering to do it. But what that experience told me was that businesses like ours can bump along and then two or three unexpected things happen all at once and bang, it's over. And when I joined, I think the team that were running the business, my dad had really retired, but still chairman, the team that were running the business were finding it very difficult to see a positive future for it. It was all about survival. That worried me deeply. We had some amazing potential and yet nobody could see their way to a more positive future. So I'll be honest, at that stage, it was about being sustainable in the most basic sense. It took years and I joined in 2006, took over as chair in 2010 and then really started a, a, a fresh chapter with a new chief executive in 2012. And it's really since then that we've built the green credentials of the company and built them up. And yeah, I think, I'll be honest, I'm not interested in growing the business if it's not sustainable in every sense, and particularly the green sense of the word. I mean, you know, I mean, what legacy is it just to think that, okay, you've made money. Okay, fine. You know, you've kept people in employment and helped the community. But, you know, if we make stuff and do stuff that's kind of bad for the world, you know, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of things to fix there. There's nothing to be proud of. What's the point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about paper, which is uh, the purpose of the podcast? Absolutely. Supposedly. Because I have to confess that one of the revelations of reading the book was about the material itself. And I, I think many people listening will assume that paper is made from wood, wood pulp. But actually, when the family took over the business, and for many years after, paper was being made from, from rags. Um, can we talk a little bit about the process and how paper is made? Yeah, yeah. By the way, I'm so happy to talk about paper. It is, the, it, it is, no, it is honestly one of, if not the world's most remarkable material. And I think, like, unlike so many other materials, there's such a future for paper. Interesting. Why is that? Because it's sustainable or can be sustainable. Yeah. Can, you know, it, not everything about it is sustainable, but ultimately it's from a renewable resource. Um, but going, going back into history, you know, it, it's, it's been around for, 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 you know, 2000 years or so. Um, you know, as a material. And at, at, at the most basic, you can make paper from any kind of plant fiber. Um, because all plants, if you sort of mush them up and break them down, are at their hearts made from cellulose. And in fact, wood pulp is actually in trees are one of the very hardest materials to get the cellulose out of. That's why they, you know, the wood pulp actually was only really came to the fore around about 1900. And, you know, if we go back into time before then, and particularly before the 1850s, all the paper in Europe or the Western world, as opposed to Asia, was made from cotton and linen rags. What did they do with those rags to create the paper in the first place? Effectively, you have to shred them, you have to prepare them. It helped that, you know, the material might be worn by generations of people wearing them. Rag and bone men that obviously were, you know, were a very common sight on our streets yeah, probably almost until the 1970s. 
you know, they were collecting rags to make into paper. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. And the bones would, you know, would go into, you know, they would be boiled up and, you know, made into, you know, for instance, materials to go into, you know, the making of leather, tanning of leather and things like that. And that was, you know, that was really upcycling. It wasn't, you know, very often people always think of, you know, when things are recycled, that they're made into something that's a bit worse. So, you know, you take a piece of paper and you recycle it and turn it into a cardboard box. Well, no, I mean, paper, if you go back to the, the start, you know, the, you, you were taking really old rags. You were actually letting them probably rot a bit. Retting is the process. You were then cutting them up and then you were effectively mushing them up. I mean, there was different ways to do that. Into the 18th century, you were using something called a Hollander beater that cut them up that was actually a mechanized piece of kit. And then you're breaking it down. Effectively, you're breaking it down into its constituent fiber. And then to make paper of any kind, what you're doing is you, you dilute these strands of cellulose in about 99% water, and then you sieve them. If you're making by hand, the sieve is called a mold. On a paper machine, rather than a mold, you have a something called a wire, which effectively is like a sieve on a that rotates round and around. It's moving, so that, and you know you get a, you know a, a roll of paper comes off that rather than a a sheet. A sheet, yeah. And this specialisation that Cropper's has in coloured paper, how did that evolve? It was one of my favourite stories. <laughs> Good, I'm glad I asked the question. It says so much <laughs> about, you know, how innovation should work. And I think it applies to how we approach things today as well. So when my forebear, James, bought the business in the 1840s, there was a massive crisis in the, the, the UK paper industry was actually ahead of the world. It, it was the first to mechanise and, and of course, with mechanised, the costs went down and therefore the demand could go up and, and so on. Um, but there was a real crisis because there wasn't enough rags anymore to meet demand. And in fact, in the 1850s, the Times offered a thousand pound reward for anybody who could come up with a, a process that could really effectively replace rags. And in fact, it was never awarded. Yeah, there was a real issue with availability of raw materials. And what we did is, in fact, is that we sourced, rather than trying to look for rags, we looked for any old kind of material that we could break down, particularly things like old Hessian sacks off the docks. You know, we were going up to Un Dundee and of course it helped that we had our railway connection by this stage. And you couldn't make clean white paper with that. But because the dye stuff industries was just emerging, you could really start making coloured paper in a way that was never possible before. So what we did is we combined you know, what was going on in the dye stuff industry with this dirty source of paper and started making coloured paper. And it was also the point with the railway network, it was the first point kind of in history where manufacturers could begin to specialise. Before then, you only really had a very local market for everything. And what you tended to do as, a, as manufacturers, you'd make everything you could. You'd make a very diverse range of products for a local market. When you had railways and, and after that, you know, things like steamships, you had national, then international markets, and you could really begin to specialise. And we became predominant very quickly as coloured paper makers. And that's a position that we've held on to this day. Mm. I mean, can we talk about how the company has changed over the years? Because you have these three separate divisions. There's the paper section we've talked about. Technical fibres division, which uh, produces things like carbon fibre paper. And the colour form division. Should we look at carbon fiber first? Um, there's a lovely anecdote that two of the directors of the company started experimenting in secret in the company lab after working hours. I mean, how important has that section become to the company and that they created this first carbon fiber paper? I think we do a lot of important things today, whether it's helping luxury brands make much more sustainable packaging. But 
that part of the business with, you know, carbon fiber based papers is now the most important part of our business. You know, it doubled in 2015 and we've just, with a bit of a COVID hiatus, <laughs> built another wing of that. And in fact, that business is now nearly 50% of what we make goes into renewable energy one way or the other. So it also it has, and these, these, these are materials that have incredibly important parts to play in some of the most important industries going forward and helping to make things lighter and lower cost and so on and so forth. That's quite interesting because what are they used for? Well, what happened with that business is we thought, could we make paper from carbon fibre, which in the 80s was like a newfangled thing, a bit like graphene now. Mm. As you were saying, two of our directors went off and unlike cellulose, carbon fibre won't naturally bond. So we had to find a way to bond it. And eventually they did and they sent it off to be analysed. And the thing about this material that we can make is it can be incredibly light, incredibly consistent. And the way that we've adapted paper machines, which is what we did next, we scaled it up. We've got this incredibly scalable process. It is almost unique what we can do with some of these materials. And this material can conduct electricity in the heart of a fuel cell. It can dissipate a lightning strike on a wind turbine blade or a composite aircraft. It can make a much smoother, more aerodynamic finish on a carbon fiber car. So for instance, you know, Lamb- uh, you know, a Lamborghini's used this material. It can insulate. It's got a plant to play now in the kind of next generation of lithium ion batteries. We've now actually got, again, we've gone even beyond this from materials into electrochemistry. We've got coating technologies that's going to play a key part in reducing the cost of the production of green hydrogen, which is going to be frankly, you know, playing an essential role in actually, frankly, us getting away from a fossil fuel world. So it's, yeah, it's almost kind of beyond imagination that this paper business does things like this, but it's all from the same DNA. And I also think it's also from the same ethos that I think we've had for so long, which is to just constantly think about new uses and what people might want and what problems we've got out there. <laughs> I know you do. Yeah, I also don't like the word solutions. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we more than ever, the world needs solutions to a lot of the problems. And amazing thing is, is that, you, you know, we are, we're a very little known business up here, but, you know, our materials are absolutely everywhere. Mm. They're mm. in every home. They're in all manner of things where you have no idea. Well, talking about new materials, you've got Colourform, where you've worked with companies such as Ruinar to create packaging. I mean, it's essentially a what thermoformed packaging solution. That sounds very <laughs> made from natural cellulose, mainly paper pulp, uh, that can be made into any shape or colour. And the idea is that it's going to take over from single-use plastic. Yeah, well, again, sorry, a little bit of a backstory to this in that when I kind of refreshed the team and tried to reimagine the future of the company, we decided to create a technology department we'd never had. And um, we appointed a chief, so it sounds terribly corporate. You know, I don't think we are corporate, but we created a chief technology officer. You know, he took three other people and basically had to come up with a new idea. He had to come up with new ideas to have a new business for the company, you know, within a reasonable space of time. And they came up with the idea to mold pulp to replace plastics in packaging. And I guess the germ of that idea was five, six years ago now, but particularly actually to do this in colour, which no one else could do. I mean, frankly, you know, an egg carton is moulded pulp. And increasingly, actually, when you get takeaway food, it's moulded pulp. But to do it in any colour, but also to a real quality and finish 
is something that we've spent, you know, we spent years and millions working on this. And interestingly, what we're now doing is what's it? What we didn't know where this would go. We started by replacing plastic inserts in, you know, for companies like L'Oreal in sort of gift packs. But actually, now what we realise is that so much packaging, you just get rid of the box altogether. So you can replace, for instance, a champagne box. This is what Ruinar did with just a really simple, lightweight wrap. Most people don't want the pack. You know, I mean, I know it's an important part of the sale and the value and all of that, but most people actually, as soon as they've bought it, they don't want the packaging. They want much less. And the Ruinar second skin that we created for them is nine times lighter than the box they had before. You know, it's 60% lower carbon footprint. You know, it's just a much more sustainable product. And and a mantra for me is everything's got to be less but better. <laughs> and this is just a good example of that in practice. And it's great that people are, people are getting being to use it. And I hope there's a lot more to follow on from Ruinar and others. And you've also started creating paper, including the colourful material from old coffee cups with in a process called cup cycling. I mean, how do you do that? Presumably you're removing the plastic coating from the cardboard? Yeah, so this is again, uh, starting about eight years ago, we wanted to use less pulp, we wanted to find something else. And what we recognised in coffee cups, coffee cups are about 98% really good quality paper, 2% plastic, but the plastic is a nightmare to get off it. And that's why, you know, most people's eyes, they're not recyclable. Well, they are recyclable, but only, frankly, after we spent several years and, and several million pounds bolting together a series of processes to get the plastic off. So, in fact, we created the world's first coffee cup recycling facility, and now we're recycling about 500 million cups a year. Where do you find the cups? Is there a system to get the cup from, I don't know, Costa to you? Yeah, well, when we started, we started actually by recycling the production waste, which again was going to landfill. Yeah. You know, we've been absolutely the forefront of telling, you know, industry and government that this is possible. And that's led to the likes of, say, Costa, for instance, Costa made a commitment that they would support the recycling of not necessarily of all their cups, but the equivalent amount of cups that they put into the marketplace. Um, McDonald's have also been really at the forefront of this as well. And it's helping to, you know, some of the other chains have been a bit more of, of the laggards, but we're very close now to being involved in the extended producer regulations that are going to come forward. And again, sort of a bit of a boring technical term, but you're going to be hearing a lot more about this if you haven't already about, you know, EPR, because it's going to change everything. It's going to change fashion. It's going to change everything we buy and consume. Um, making the producers responsible for the materials that they're pushing out into the market and making it a lot easier for them to be made and remade. Yeah, we've been at the forefront of that for coffee cups. And I think I think that's also going to play a massive part in us. I, we're going to go back to recycling rags and textiles again. We we're aiming for 50% of all the fibre we use being waste by 2025 and textiles is going to play a big part again hmm. fascinating the cup cycling bit is the first story but it's by no means the last more recently you've set up the paper foundation just up the hill from the main factory where you're making handmade paper you've collected a vast array of paper making molds over 700 i think why did you feel compelled to start making paper by hand mark it's a sort of very complimentary but quite separate project and I've been working with quite a few other people for a number of years now about trying to reinvigorate our community around our mill, um, which despite being in this incredible setting on the edge of the Lake District, is quite tired in some ways and needs some rethinking. And um, 
somebody said to me several years ago, well, you know, why don't you do something around sort of celebrating paper as a subject? That got me thinking, well, you know, what, what do people do to celebrate paper as a, as a material and, and such like? How do they look after the heritage of paper? And I started looking into it, and it, it's interesting because if you compare paper to printing, printing gets all the column inches. Printing, everyone always talks about Gutenberg and his press and, and everything that came from that. And paper is almost kind of by its absence. It's just noticeable for its absence. Same thing in you know, the world of art. Art on paper is always viewed as sort of somehow lesser, and people don't even talk about the paper that you know, some, some of the world's greatest works are on. Well, that's one recognition. And then what happened was I started just asking, finding out what was going on in the whole world of paper heritage. What, what had happened to all these hundreds of paper mills in this country that had died over a century or more? And um, literally almost within days, I was in a mill in Maidstone in Kent. And it was the very last mill owned by a company called Watman, which is now part of GE. And they were closing it. They were moving production to the Far East. And in it, there was a, a room full of, you know, this archaic equipment. Um, you know, some of it, you know, 100, 150 years old. And I asked them, what are they doing with it? And they said, well, if you know, if you want to give us a donation, a donation to charity, you can have it. And this sort of went on and on. And I kept finding mills sort of with basements full of things. So when you were looking for this stuff, you had a notion of what the foundation would become? No, not at all, really. <laughs> I mean, I, You were just collecting I stuff. had this notion that, Paper as a subject area is something that should be celebrated more. And I quickly discovered that no one else was really doing it. Because if they were, frankly, I didn't want to repeat what was being done and well elsewhere. The whole business of handmade paper um, has emerged from this. is really just a starting point for us. So we've built probably the first new handmade paper mill in this country for <laughs> a couple of hundred years. Um and we've done that to preserve the knowledge of making paper by hand, which is really very nearly extinct. And we took over from the last makers of handmade archival paper used in conservation. Actually, sort of a husband and wife who were actually based in Ireland that have now retired, but carried the royal warrant for this. You know, they were really eminent in what they did, and they were the last people that could do it. So they trained us up. We took their kit, added it to what I'd rescued over a number of years. We've got some incredibly exciting projects now for sort of world's leading conservators book binders you know we've got a really exciting project i can't talk about yet oh can you not when people say that they're always yeah i really need to know <laughs> no you're definitely not telling us your, your eyes you're well i'd love no I, I i wish i could tell and you will find out soon but it's an incredibly important project and i think we feel honored that this paper that in fact we set up to make paper by hand is it's in a cow shed at the back of my house but in fact, it's going to be going all around the world in connection with a very, very important project. So that's an exciting thing to talk about another time. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry. That's all right, I suppose. So um, who is the we? You talk about we. How many are you? Well, two people. Well, I wouldn't count me as one. Um, I'm less than one. But um, we are two people, but I guess that's added up to two. So I was... A little bit like, you know, when, you, when you've got new projects, you know, you never quite know where the funding is coming from. You know, you can't just go out and hire people who've got all the necessary qualifications because you just can't afford to. So, in fact, I was incredibly lucky that somebody heard about the project along the grapevine. And he was a, actually, he was a, he's a young history graduate living in London. He was working for Damien Hurst, more on the kind of admin end of things. And he was 
looking for more purpose in his life. He wanted to combine using his brains, but also with craftsmanship and making as well. And um, he's called Tom Frith Powell. And he moved up from London just at the beginning of 2020, just in time for um, Mike and Chris came over from Ireland to train us. By then, we'd got another great guy called Paul Davis, who's based here, who is a bit of jack of all trades, but he's helped me set up all the kit and actually got it back from Ireland and, and, and from all over the place. He's, you know, it's, it's one thing to find a load of stuff somewhere. It's another thing to kind of extract it. You know, and actually there is, there's, there's electrics and hydraulics involved and other things like that. So he's helped me with that. And really the combination of Paul, who I'd call the millwright, and Tom, we've got going. And in fact, Tom, I think, has, you know, he's mid-20s. I think he has learnt the craft of making paper by hand to a quite remarkable degree and quality in the time that we've done so far. And he's really applying intellect. And I think one of the excitements for Tom and I is that there's an awful lot of knowledge around how paper was made in the past, the type of paper, the quality of paper, for instance, that Leonardo would draw on that is lost, but it's not beyond being rediscovered. And that's something that we are really excited about getting onto. Fascinating. So what's your vision for the foundation ultimately, Mark? I mean, how are you going to remake the community through paper? Something I'm thinking about and talking about all the time. I mean, obviously I'm a bit biased, but you know, paper is this incredible material and it deserves a lot more thought and recognition. And, you know, there's only a certain amount to which you can, you know, I think you know, James Cropper, the family business, will you know will continue to forge a responsible, sustainable path for paper in the future. But there's only so much that you can do through a business. And really what we've got an opportunity to do through the foundation is celebrate paper and what we can do with it in a much kind of broader sense. And at the same time, we can preserve what might otherwise be lost for instance, the technique of making paper by hand and all the equipment you need for that. Rediscover what's already been lost. But equally, once you start going into paper-related arts, be it paper conservation, be it book binding, be it letterpress printing, making of decorative papers, again, you know, a lot of these are, if not underappreciated, we've seen a gradual deterioration in, in education in these fields. The idea for the foundation, and which is, you know, you've got to have a vision. Which, <laughs> um, this, this might sound, you know, a, a bit ambitious, but, you know, we really want it to play a preeminent part in the future of paper and all its associated arts and crafts almost globally. Very good. And when I went round the factory, your son was in the lab doing some work experience. Do you think your kids will want to take on the family firm? Are you grooming them? I don't know when I'm grooming them. I think I certainly, you know, they've been living at home, you know, with us and I didn't do that. I was sent away to school. So certainly paper, I think, has in many ways played a bigger part in their lives growing up than it did in mine. And, you know, the fact that we've actually got a handmade paper mill, as I say, in a cow shed at the back of our house, is something that where we can make paper by hand and they make paper by hand there. I was going to say, are they in there kind of getting, getting their hands dirty? They, they're in there, getting, they are in there. In fact, they, they, and actually they, they took on the kind of the less um, attractive end of the project in that they actually played a big part in literally re restoring and re remaking this cow shed in lockdown last year. There was a lot of painting going on and some of it was, you know, quite hard work in fact. So yeah, but equally, you know, I think, 
they've got to go away and find their own way in the world and we'll see where it goes. Um, no one will be happier if they do choose to follow in the family footsteps, but that's for them to decide and they're still young. So who knows? Yeah. And so final question, it's a future question. Future for you, Mark, future for croppers, where do you see yourself? I think, I mean, paper's got to be something that is, you know, part of my life to my dying day, without a doubt. Um, You know, other things in life come and go, don't they? It's very much part of my life. The kind of combination of the family company and the kind of the the, the foundation means that I'm kind of connected to it in, in some quite different ways. I'm really ambitious for both. I think the company can do a lot more. It's got to do it in the right way. Otherwise, we shouldn't be doing it. So there's a, you know, for instance, you know, we're looking very hard and seriously at how we reduce our carbon footprint, getting to zero by 2030, which is a massive ambition in a in a in a um, energy intensive industry. But equally, I think we make some products that will play a really important role in helping the balance between, frankly, man and nature be be more balanced. If we can do that in a way that has very low impact itself. I think we're a, you know, I think we're doing a good thing and I think we're a great model for other people to follow as well. Very good. It's a lovely place to leave it. Mark, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Was that all right? <laughs> yeah, it was great. Thank you. And to discover more about James Cropper, go to jamescropper.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Right. I'm going on holiday for a week or so, and Sam, my sound engineer, is going to be busy at Freeze, so we're not going to be about for the next couple of weeks, but we will be back soon with an exciting array of guests. Thanks very much for listening.